Hello and welcome to Radio Maria. This is Credo, and today I have the privilege and the pleasure of having Sofia Karatza with us in the studio. This is not a Google Meet, which is always lovely to to be doing things in person. And uh, firstly, very warm welcome to you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's lovely to have you. Did I pronounce your name correctly? You did. I'm very oh, impressed. Wonderful. Thank Good. you. <laughs> I'm so glad. So um, I was put in touch with um, Sophia through a dear mutual friend of ours, uh, Father Andrew Hostedler. And um, he said that he couldn't speak, but he found someone even better. Those were his words. <laughs> um, and I've been very um, fascinated by the topic that you're going to speak about today and just reading the little uh, descriptions that you've put together and Everyone that I've shared it with has said that they're also really excited to hear about what you're going to be speaking about. And um, so I'm going to let you uh, begin and I'm going to let you go straight into it because we don't want to, to waste any time listening to my voice. So <laughs> over to you, Sophia. Thank you. Thank you. It's a joy and a privilege to be able to speak to you today about the neuroscience of ruptured relationships and restoring communion. And I'm going to start with a quote from Pope Francis. Pope Francis said, The entire world is at war and in self-destruction. He spoke these words recently during a conversation about the ongoing devastation in Ukraine. He was referring, certainly, to the nearly 50 ongoing civil wars and armed conflicts throughout the world. But he was also referring to the self-destruction of our decadent society the violence in our homes and our streets, the conflict in our offices and our governments. The entire world, he said, is at war and in self-destruction. And where is Christ? Where is the Lord who came that we might have life in abundance and promised us his peace? Gazing at the world, it may seem that these words are hollow and these promises empty. But Christ promised us to be here forever, and his promise is true. He is present in the church, that is to say, in each one of you, of us, the divine physician who wants to heal the wounds of a broken humanity, of a world at war, is present in you. So the entire world may be at war and in self-destruction, but the Prince of Peace is present within it through us. This is an uncomfortable claim. Often, I think we relegate the reality that we're Christ's body to the abstract level, imagining it as some transcendent reality detached from our daily life and untouched by our humanity. Or we reduce the peace that Christ came to bring to a socio-political change, as if the divine physician only healed our wounds through policies and negotiations. I think these reductions blind us to our responsibility to work for peace, a responsibility each of us carries daily in every encounter that we have. The peace that the whole world is crying out for begins from the relationship that you have with the person next to you. It's in that bond that the grace of God will enter the world. You may be thinking to yourself, I tuned in for a talk on neuroscience. <laughs> what on earth does this have to do with the brain? An excellent question. And the answer is simple. We're embodied souls or ensouled bodies. We are an irreducible unity of soul and matter. So the darkness of sin, and conversely, the glory of redemption, is not merely spiritual, but inscribed in our brains and bodies. 
By looking at the nervous system, therefore, I think we can better understand the violence that the Pope condemns and the peace that he calls for, which is exactly what I'm going to do in our remaining time together. I'm going to tell a story about the brain that will help us understand how sin wounds us, but how we as a church can be the presence of Christ who heals those wounds. The story starts actually before sin, before the fall of Adam and Eve allowed violence to enter the world. It starts with creation. We read in Genesis that God created the human person in his image and likeness. This is a God who has revealed himself to be Trinity, to be a communion of three persons, giving themselves in love, the overflowing of whose life gives birth to all creation. So at the origin of our being is a communion. We are the image and likeness of a relationship of love. The brain clearly proclaims this reality. The brain is a fundamentally relational organ. What do I mean by that? I mean that the brain both develops and functions through relationships of love. To understand this, we first have to know something about brain development. So what are the steps? How does it begin? The brain starts developing in the very first weeks of life, while you are still a tiny embryo. A handful of cells in your body start to become neurons, or brain cells. This birth of neurons accelerates rapidly. During your time in the womb, 86 billion brain cells will form. So we all have these brain cells, and they're born tightly packed in the center of your nervous system. So the second step of brain development is that they need to move from the center of the nervous system to their proper place. They need to migrate across the embryo to the places they belong throughout the brain and the spinal cord. Once they've arrived, then the neurons are fully mature and ready to function. But how do they function? What do brain cells do? Brain cells communicate with one another, sending electrical signals along long connections, kind of like me messages are passed along a telephone wire. So the third step of brain development, after the birth of neurons and their migration to their right place, is the formation of these long connections. During infancy, neurons make connections with each other at an explosive rate. These connections start forming the brain circuits that support your breathing, your movement, and eventually your emotions, thoughts, and behaviors. The fourth and final step of neurodevelopment, perhaps paradoxically, is the elimination of connections. Why would we want to get rid of connections we've just formed? Well, we want the brain circuits of the baby to be efficient, so we get rid of all the weak connections we're not using to make the important ones stronger. Imagine that you're in the car driving from one place to another. Perhaps you are at this very moment. It's more efficient to take a highway than lots of backcountry roads. So the final step of neurodevelopment is to turn the roads into highways. So we have the birth of neurons, their movement, their connection, and the consolidation of neural circuits. These are the steps that take us from a handful of cells at the start of life to a fully-fledged nervous system. They are intricate and complex processes. So these steps have to be coordinated with immense precision if we're going to get a healthy brain. If we're going to have the right neurons in the right regions, connected to the right targets, and communicating in the right patterns. How on earth does the nervous system achieve this precision? For a long time, neuroscientists thought it was just genetics. 
In other words, they thought that the information in our DNA wholly directed the steps of our brain development. But in recent decades, we found out this is wrong. It's not just your genes that determine your brain development. Your brain cells depend on something else to guide them. And what is that? It's the environment. It's the experiences that an infant has in her environment, and specifically the experiences she has of loving care from her parents. These give the child's body crucial information that directs the development of the brain. While a child is in the womb, this information comes directly through the mother's body. Maternal heart rate, touch, smell, patterns of movement and responses to stress, all of these provide the signals that guide the baby's brain development. So the mom's loving care of her own body and of the baby within fosters the birth, migration, and connections of the baby's neurons. So on a neurobiological level, we see that from the very start, the human person is fundamentally embedded in relationships, fundamentally dependent upon love. But this doesn't stop at birth, far from it. Because the brain keeps developing in dialogue with its experiences of love. Across infancy and toddlerhood, the brain more than triples in volume, and its neural circuits gradually mature until they can support adult thinking and behavior. And what are the signals that drive this growth and maturation? Again, they're not just genetic. They come through the cognitive and social stimulation that a child receives from her loved ones. And we'll talk more about that later. Because of this fact, because relationships drive the development of the brain, the brain is fundamentally shaped to function in the context of relationships throughout a person's life. It is programmed, if we want to use that metaphor, to rely on the brains of others in order to do what it should. Your memory, for example, depends on the stimuli of the faces of others to evoke the neural activity that allows you to remember what you would otherwise forget. Or your attention depends on the gazes of others to suppress irrelevant thoughts and brain activity that would distract you. Not to mention your emotional networks, which are exquisitely tuned to the feelings of others. Or your behavioral regulation, which draws great strength from the example and accompaniment of others. Of course, none of these capacities are reducible to just the brain. They are all also psychological and even spiritual. But the regions of the brain that support things like memory, attention, emotion, and self-control depend upon our social embeddedness to do what they're meant to do. So we see in the depths of our neurobiology, in the development and the function of the brain, a reflection of the truths of our being, that the Lord made us in and through relationships of love, that we are the image and likeness of a God who is Trinity, and therefore that interdependence, dependence upon one another, is the path to our flourishing. But of course, we know that sin entered the world. Original sin was Adam and Eve's rejection of relationship. It was the choice to make themselves God instead of accepting their dependence upon him. And every sin that follows is the same. It's a rejection of relationship and dependence. This marks our fallen world, and it wounds us in a way that affects our nervous systems as well as our minds and souls. We see this perhaps most poignantly in situations of abuse and neglect, when children grow up deprived of the loving care they deserve. Because the nervous system develops in dialogue with a child's experiences, 
abuse or neglect early in life can change the trajectory of their brain development. To understand how this happens, think of the parent of an infant. When his or her baby cries, the parent will pick them up, soothe them, and try to address their needs. This will shut down the stress response of the infant. It communicates to the baby's nervous system that she is in fact safe, so her stress hormone levels can fall and her brain activity can shift from high alert to a regulated state. But what would happen if the parent ignored the child, not just once, but systematically and for a long period of time, or responded with cruelty? The child's brain wouldn't receive the signal that she's safe, because she's not, and so would remain on high alert far longer. There's evidence that, over time, this can change the size and connectivity and activity of some regions of the brain. For example, the amygdala, which plays an important role in our awareness of the environment and our emotions. The amygdala seems to be bigger in children who have been maltreated. So in this way, the early experience of violence has been inscribed in their neurobiology. But why is this relevant? Why do we care? Well, the difference in the structure of the amygdala seems to make people more sensitive to stress later in life. It seems to make people more likely to see one another as a threat. This doesn't mean that maltreatment somehow breaks the brain, because heightened sensitivity to threats, for example, can keep a child safe if she's surrounded by violence. So this difference in the amygdala just means that her brain has adapted to living in a threatening environment. But of course, these kinds of neural adaptations can also make it harder for her to trust others, thereby perpetuating the pattern of broken relationships in her life. So we see that the sin of parents interferes with the fullness of life that the Lord desires for their children through a wound that marks their bodies and brains as well as their minds. Another place we see the wound of violence in our biology is in sociopolitical conflicts like war. Studies of veterans who fought in armed conflicts, as well as studies of civilians who survived them, show widespread differences in the brain. Again, these include changes in the volume of key brain regions, their activity, and their connections with one another. As an example, let's take the anterior cingulate cortex, which is involved in the regulation of your mood and pain, your attention, and your impulse control. One study compared soldiers who were deployed to a combat zone to their colleagues who weren't deployed, and found that this deployment reduced the volume of their anterior cingulate cortex and made the region smaller. How could this be? Well, we know that the brain remains plastic or malleable throughout the lifespan. And as I mentioned at the start of today's talk, the neural connections that we don't use are eventually lost. They're eliminated because the brain thinks they're unnecessary and inefficient. And eventually, if you lose enough brain connections, the size of your brain actually decreases. And that seems to be what has happened in this case. It seems that immersion in a hostile environment, where a soldier is observing or carrying out violent acts, and living under the shadow of a threat to his life, leads to atrophy or shrinking of the anterior cingulate cortex. But again, what might the functional implications of this change be? Or in other words, why should we care? While other studies have found a correlation between the volume of this region and symptoms of anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. So it seems to be a neurobiological pathway or a risk factor for the kinds of mental health difficulties that veterans often face.
So we see that war wounds our neurobiology in a way that participates in the psychological and spiritual burden that it inflicts on our lives. A third and final place we see the wound of broken relationships in our biology is when individuals are lonely. We are living amid an epidemic of loneliness, which only grows more severe. A recent report from the U.S. Surgeon General says that uh, social isolation has a hugely detrimental impact on physical health that is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes daily. But this also includes the brain. Unsurprisingly, of course, because the brain, again, is a relational organ. It depends upon others in order to function well. The impact of loneliness on the brain is still being understood. But a recent neuroscience study found a striking result. This study compared the patterns of brain activity that are active when you're thinking about yourself to those that are active when you're thinking about others. So in other words, researchers were interested in how the brain represents the self versus how it represents others. And they found that lonely people have a greater discrepancy in brain activity in the medial prefrontal cortex than socially connected people when thinking about themselves versus thinking about others. So it seems that the experience of loneliness changes the brain. It generates a distorted neural representation of yourself as somehow alienated from others, as somehow fundamentally different from others. So clearly, even in our neurobiology, loneliness distorts our access to the truth, which is that we are made in and for relationships of love. This finding parallels what happens when people are subjected to solitary confinement, for example, in prison. Often they start hallucinating, seeing or hearing things that aren't really there and dissociating from their identity or losing a sense of who they are. So we see that there's a breakdown in our access to reality, in our understanding of ourselves and others and the world, when we're deprived of loving relationships with others. But this is not the final word on the world. Adversity and war and loneliness is not the final word on the world, because sin has already been conquered. The Lord has redeemed us, and through, though his victory will not be complete until he comes again, may it be soon, his grace is already operative. Operative how? Through us. As I mentioned at the start, we as the body of Christ are the divine physician in the world. This may seem scandalous to some. Honestly, if we take it seriously, I think it should shock us. But this is the method of God who assumed our humanity in the Incarnation in order to save us, and established a church to be his continued presence in the world. He continues to act, but he is non-competitively transcendent. In other words, his grace is not opposed to our works. The initiative of the Spirit takes place through us. So each one of us can participate in his victory over sin and death. Again, we often relegate this to the abstract level or to the global scene. But peace is a possibility presented to us in the smallest details of our daily lives. More than that, peace is a responsibility that we have in the smallest details of our daily lives. As Monsignor Paolo Pezzi, the Archbishop of Moscow, once said, in reference to the war on Ukraine, peace begins in the heart. 
by welcoming the peace that is Christ. Those who have the courage to do so become irresistibly contagious, end quote. We are asked to welcome the peace that is Christ in the person next to us. Our siblings, our friends, our classmates, the homeless people we pass on the street. Either the presence of Christ changes something about how we treat these people, or it's an illusion, a mere idea. The peace of the world turns on whether or not we say yes to loving Christ in the people closest to us. So what do we do? Concretely, how can we collaborate in ending the war and self-destruction that consumes the world? After a brief break, I'll propose some ideas. And we'll be back after this brief music break.
You're listening to Crater on Radio Maria and um, very interesting program that we have been um, listening to today by Sofia Carosa and it's about the effects of um, ruptured relationships and seeking communion um, from a neurological perspective and um, I'm going to allow you to, to carry on. Thanks, Tim. <clears throat> so at the start of our time together, we saw how neuroscience can put flesh and bones on our being made in the image of God. And then we spoke about how it can help us understand the wound incurred by sin. In this final part of our time together, I'm going to try to use neuroscience to help us see what it means to participate in redemption. There are certainly many ways to participate in Christ's victory over the world. But I'm going to propose three primary forms that this work for peace is going to take in our daily lives. The first form that it takes is care of children. As I mentioned earlier, the growth and maturation of a child's brain isn't just genetically determined, but depends on dialogue with the environment, and in particular on interactions with loved ones. This unfolds through a phenomenon called biobehavioral synchrony. This is the coupling of physiological and behavioral processes during interactions between an adult and a child. And we see this coupling or synchronization in four areas. First, there's synchronized behavior. This is when you and a baby look at the same thing, talk or babble back and forth, or engage with the same physical object, like a toy. These shared behaviors are essential for the formation of a baby's language centers, the development of her abstract thought, and her later social behavior. The second domain of biobehavioral synchrony is the coupling of heart rates. Just through the sharing of a simple smile or a gaze, <clears throat> a baby's heartbeat can regulate itself <clears throat> excuse me, by matching an adult's heartbeat. This is thought to be important for the development of a baby's physiological and emotional regulation. Excuse me. The third domain are coordinated hormone responses, which help the baby's brain learn to regulate her arousal and stress. And finally, there's brain-to-brain -brain synchrony. This means that a baby's neurons can imitate the ways of activity of an adult's neurons. And this imitation seems to play a part in the formation of attention, memory, and higher-order thinking skills. So interacting with infants in the most ordinary ways supports the growth of their brain. It supports their growth into who they are called to be. And crucially, there's evidence that biobehavioral synchrony can buffer against the effects of maltreatment or help children recover from experiences of harm early in life. In other words, the loving care of a single supportive adult, of you, can heal the wounds of abuse and neglect that I mentioned earlier. Now, biobehavioral synchrony is most easily achieved between a mother and her infant, or a father and his infant. So this supports the fact that the vocation of parenthood is the primary way that we can cherish life and participate in God's ongoing act of creation of the world. But it's not limited to biological mothers and fathers. As St. Edith Stein says, the soul of a woman is fashioned as a shelter in which other souls may unfold. And as Massimo Kamisaska says, to be a spiritual father is to imitate God 
by bringing others to the full stature of their maturity. So care for children is something we are all called to do. We can certainly do this spiritually in many ways, but also tangibly by interacting with the children around us, by engaging in biobehavioral synchrony and thus participating in the ongoing creation and redemption of their nervous systems. The second way that we can participate in peace that I would like to propose to you today is friendship. Friendship, or the free love of another for their own sake, which St. Augustine described as the one thing necessary in this world other than life itself. How does neuroscience portray friendship? Well, there's much that we don't know yet, but neuroscience seems to show two things. First, that the love of our friends changes the reward system in our brains. The reward system is a set of brain regions that supports our pursuit and attainment of positive aspects of our environment. So, for example, it plays a part in our ability to desire and attain things like good food, romantic relationships, experiences of beauty or success. Research shows that stable and close friendships change what the brain's reward system re responds to. And specifically, friendships lead the reward system to value positive rewards that are given to others in the same way that it would value positive rewards given to itself. So in other words, we see even in our neurobiology that friendship, over time, teaches us to rejoice in the good of another, teaches us to love our neighbor as ourself. This directly contributes to peace. Because at the heart of the world's violence is Satan's lie that our lives are about us, and that our good is somehow different from the good of our neighbor. So that's the first neuroscience finding about friendship, the reward system of the brain. The second is that friendship changes the social brain. This is a set of neural regions involved in understanding the mental states of others. In other words, when you try to imagine the inner life of another person, or practice empathy, or take the perspective of another, you will be activating and using the regions of this brain network. And research shows that high-quality friendships make the social brain reach maturity faster, and maybe even make it stronger overall. So again, we see that on the level of the brain, it's by cultivating our relationships with our friends that we gain the capacity to empathize with others and understand their inner lives. We learn to gaze on others, including others who are different from us, as God sees them. I believe this is part of the Holy Spirit's gift of understanding, which is clearly a critical element of the work for peace. So we have care for children and friendship. The third and final form that I would like to propose today of our participation in Christ's victory over the world is prayer, both liturgical prayer and personal prayer in silence. Liturgical prayer is the highest act that any one of us can do because it affects our union with God and with one another. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, there is little neuroscience research on Christian liturgy as such, but there is research on elements of it, such as partaking in a meal with others, habitual repetitive movements, synchronized speech and singing, listening together, touch and eye contact, such as at the sign of peace. The details of the neural correlates of these elements of liturgy are too extensive to delve into here, 
But if you're interested in one or another, please call in at the end and ask me about it. It's enough for now to say that by exploring our biology, we see that the elements of the liturgy have tremendous power to transform our brains. These rituals create in us, not only in soul but in body, a new memory, new habits, new beliefs and desires, and new bonds of belonging. So by going to Mass, we're making ourselves physically available to the Lord's renewal of our lives and his overcoming of every division amongst us. Of course, we believe that the Mass is also a participation in the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ, which alone achieved our eternal salvation. But through the lens of neuroscience, we can appreciate that this spiritual reality is not divorced from our everyday life, but it reaches into our flesh to generate a newness of life and love in our community here and now. And finally, personal prayer in silence. Prayer in an often quoted line is nothing other than the lifting of the mind and heart to God. Or to use another image, prayer is receiving the Lord who stands at the door knocking, as he says in the book of Revelation. Those of you who practice mental prayer regularly will know just what a wellspring of peace and joy and strength it is in any circumstance. Neuroscience has sought to understand what happens in the brain during such experiences. Some of the studies are of dubious quality, unfortunately, and many of them operationalize prayer in an inadequate way. But we can draw some conclusions from the neuroscience literature. I think the primary finding that emerges is that we see the same patterns of brain activity during Christian prayer as we do during interactions with human beings. Specifically, prayer activates the temporopolar region and the temporoparietal junction, the medial prefrontal cortex, and the precuneus. This is the social brain that I mentioned earlier when I was talking about friendship, the social brain that friendship helps bring to maturity. So in other words, the brain participates in our dialogue with the triune God in a similar way as it does our dialogue with friends and loved ones. This might be a scandal to non-Christians who could see this as contradicting the transcendence and divinity of a deity. But to us Christians, it's eminently reasonable because we believe in a God who took a human face so that we might encounter him in the flesh. We believe in a God who emptied himself and became one of us in all things but sin, so that friendship with him might restore us to our eternal destiny. What does this have to do with peace? Well, the heart of every Christian prayer is, in the final words of the book of the Revelation, Come, Lord Jesus. Every true gesture of prayer is asking for the Lord to come save the world. Not just to save ourselves. As Luigi Giussani says, if prayer is not begging for Christ to come to the whole world, it's not prayer, it's individualistic pietism. So every time we pray, no matter what it's about, we are interceding on behalf of the whole world, standing with confidence before the throne of grace to ask him to heal the wounds of division violence, and sin. It's in this practice that we discover that our greatest joy, our greatest peace, lies in imitating Christ, in giving our lives for the salvation of the world. 
So in summary, we have seen today that our brains reflect the truth of our origin in the heart of the Trinity. They illustrate that we were created from the very beginning in the image of a relationship of self-giving love. But neuroscience also puts flesh and bones on the devastating effects of rejecting this relationship. On how our desperate desire to make ourselves God daily increases the misery and woundedness of the world. The entire world, as Pope Francis said, is at war and in self-destruction. But finally, we have seen that the Church, and what she proposes for the Christian life, care for children, friendship, liturgy, and prayer, grants us the healing that the Lord desires for us, and transforms us into channels of his peace for the whole world. But I'd like to conclude with an invitation that is appropriate this month of May. Let's ask Our Lady to intercede for peace in Ukraine and throughout the world. Because who shows more than Mary that our lives truly can become wellsprings of peace in this world? We call Mary Mother of Mercy and Queen of Peace. But let's think for a moment. What did she do to achieve those titles? Did she sit down at a negotiating table between Jews and Romans and resolve their differences? or campaign to try to end the oppression of her people, or even eliminate discord between the apostles and the early church. No. She became the queen of peace by saying yes to the invitation that the Lord sent her through the angel Gabriel, by receiving Christ in her womb, by living a quiet life in Nazareth, raising her son and serving Joseph and later the beloved disciple, participating in her local community and going to the temple. In other words, through caring for children, through friendship, through liturgy and prayer. That's how she became the mother of mercy, how she ushered into the world a peace that the world cannot give. Which is not to say that political efforts to end the war or to end oppression in our world are vain. They're not vain. They're hugely important and deserve our material support and, above all, our prayers. But such efforts would be vain without the presence of Christ, for he alone can generate life. So let's invoke our Blessed Mother, the Mother of Christ, and therefore the Mother of each one of us who are members of his body. Let's ask her to guide us in heeding the Pope's call, that through us, the entire world might be at peace. We're going to go to another music break. You can hold my hand when you need to let go. I can be a mountain when you're feeling valley low. I can be a street light showing you the way home. Cause you can hold my hand when you need to let go. I want a house with a crowded table and a place by the fire for every 
You're listening to Credo on Radio Maria, and this has been a really interesting conversation with Sofia Corazza about um, neuroscience and the effects on the brain of um, abuse and communion and um, broken and restored uh, relationships. And we have a caller on the line. Um, it's Anna from London. Hello, Anna. Hello. Hi, Tim. Hi, Sophia. Lovely um, to have I, you. You have a question for us? Yes, I've got a question for Sophia. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us on Credo this afternoon. I was really interested when you were talking about how prayer activates those same patterns in the brain as when we interact with our friends and have that real social relationship. Um, I was wondering how your understanding and your own research um, in the field of neuroscience has shaped the way that you think about prayer and, and your faith and whether it's been, perhaps, um, has it been more of a case of your studies shining light and helping you understand things and making sense of things? Or to what extent have you found things, perhaps as you wrap up your time in the UK, um, have you found things which have really surprised you and made you think very differently um, about the more traditional ways that we're taught to think about um, prayer and faith? Mm. Thank you, Anna. Thanks. That's a great question. And uh, yeah, it makes me reflect with great gratitude Mm -hmm. on my studies in in general and uh, my studies of the brain in particular and just how much they have taught me about um, my faith myself as a child of God and and how to live that relationship. Um, It's interesting when it comes to the neuroscientific study of prayer. I mentioned earlier that a lot of the studies are poorly conducted, unfortunately. Mm. And I think one of the primary ways that we see that is they have a, a really narrow understanding of what constitutes prayer. They're almost exclusively concerned with kind of mystical experiences um, or or silent uh, subjective experiences of the presence of God, which certainly is is an element of prayer. But we understand prayer much more broadly um, in in all sorts of different practices and experiences that help us be in relationship with God. So I think I've taken from neuroscience um, as a whole, rather than studies that are attempting to to uh, understand the correlates of prayer. But I've taken from neuroscience as a whole um, exactly this this insight of uh, the possibility of being in dialogue with the Lord through the ordinary experiences of daily life and through the biological ways that this impacts my nervous system. So not, yeah, understanding that there isn't a boundary wall of separation between experiences of prayer and the rest of life or the spiritual life and the personal life and my experience of creation and my experience of my friends, that all of these things too can become worship of God and can become dialogue with him. There's a continuity there, or even better yet, sort of a a porosity and a a multi-layered nature of reality. Um, Yeah. And so there are neuroscientific studies that I've found that have helped me with specific elements of that, like um, helping me understand how to better keep my attention on the rosary, which is something that I struggled with for a long time. (laughs) But more broadly, I would just say that, yeah, that it helps me understand the continuity of prayer with all of the other experiences of my daily life, which is a beautiful and I think ennobling gaze to have on um, on the experiences that you have. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but... Yeah, that's really great to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you. Thanks, Anna. Thank you for sharing. 
Thanks for that wonderful question, Anna. I had a, uh, some thoughts as I was listening to your talk. Um, and forgive me if I don't articulate this very well, but maybe you can help me as, as we go. But I was noticing how the way in which you speak about the brain, you use your language in a very particular way. And um, where people would often speak about our, our brain as almost being the thing that is what it means to be human. Mm. You have a different way of speaking about it, mm. where you you say um, about how the brain can um, be a symbol for for what we uh, maybe maybe I I'm remembering that wrongly or and I, I just I wonder if you can if you, you seem to be nodding at what I'm saying and maybe you can go a little bit deeper sure. into into why you take that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say. Um, the brain is definitely a critical element of who we are, and yet at the same time that it's not the grounds of reality when it comes to our personal identity and what it means to be human. Um, I follow the tradition of Thomas Aquinas in looking at the human person as a composite of soul and body, but not like... Uh, two separate substances that somehow are related to each other, like you've got some ghostly soul located somewhere in the spiritual world, and then you've got a fleshly body here in the physical world, and somehow they're, they causally influence each other. Not so much that as, um, as the soul being the form of the body, so that thing which gives organization and life and meaning to the very flesh of my body. That's what the soul is. So I would say my soul is what makes me me, not my brain. But um, but this isn't separate from my embodied existence. It's a, it's a soul that is fundamentally embodied and therefore embrained. And so things that happen to my brain can affect my soul. And that's exactly what we would expect because this is the way that the Lord has created us. Um, I am concerned at how often in the popular imagination the brain is taken to be the starting point and the most important and fundamental level when it comes to personal identity. If you go to any bookstore, there are shelves and shelves of self-help books that try to or claim to be able to teach you how to change your brain and therefore change your life, which is a salvation opposed to the one that Christ wants to bring. It's an illusory salvation because that's not how that's not how life works. Um, and so I would say, yeah, recovering, recovering an understanding of the self that is biological because we are embodied beings but it's not reduced to biology is really important and and one way that i try to promote that is exactly as you noted by speaking about the brain in a way that makes it very clear that the brain is not i'm not anthropomorphizing it so i'm not mm -hmm. giving it you know a life of its own a capacity for uh, directing our development or or yeah not taking away our human freedom um but rather contextualizing it as one layer among others, that is important and that might constrain our freedom sometimes, but that is always open to the initiative of grace and um, and the reality of the spiritual life. Does that answer your question? Yes. Fascinating. I, I think we could carry on talking about that, <laughs> but we have a, a caller on the line and I, I want to prioritize people we've called in. Um, Radio Maria, hello. Hello, it's Father Toby here. Ah, hello, Father Toby. Uh, I just want to say it's been, been absolutely fascinating. Um, really enjoyed that. That last answer especially was music to my ears because I, I tried to, I'd say I tried to write because I wasn't very happy with it, but I did my thesis on um, on a sort of 
how a proper account of the human person is needed to mm. treat depression and what the, the vice of Achadia and the passion of sorrow in Aquinas might have oh, wow. to teach us. I actually had three, three, three questions. The first two are very short, and then the third one's are a bit longer. Um, the first one was actually, who, who, who picked that song, uh, Crowded, Crowded Table? That was me. Fantastic. I thought that was brilliant. I loved it. I thought it was too cool for Tim to have picked. So uh, <laughs> thank you for that. The, uh, the, the, sec- the second question was, have you got any, any reading that you would suggest to our, to our listeners who want to read, read more about this? Have you written any stuff online? or? I have written things online. So I've, I've written about, um, if, you look, if you look at the Church Life Journal, which is a publication run by the University of Notre Dame, I've written there on things like uh, dialogue between faith and neuroscience. Um, in fact, an essay that I imagine I should have read your uh, dissertation before writing on how oh, no, no. a more robust uh, understanding of the human soul can help us treat depression. Uh, so those sorts of things are on Church Life Journal. Um, but I also yeah, I recommend uh, if you're interested in the effects of Abuse and Neglect on Brain Development. There's a great book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Um, yeah, and if there are more specific questions, I'm happy to direct recommendations in those domains. Thank you. And then the, the more substantial question was, I, I was fascinated when you were speaking about um, sort of having monitored brain activity during prayer. And I, I just wondered whether anybody had actually looked at that in the same subject, but looking at the looking at them at times when they reported sort of dryness in mm. prayer and times when they sort of reported having a, mm. a prayer life of more consolation or feeling more fruitful? That is such a good question. The answer is no. I've never seen a study that considers those kinds of qualitative dif- differences, which is one place that we see the absolute poverty of the neuroscientific approach uh, to prayer, in part because I think a lot of the people conducting these studies don't have prayer lives themselves um, or, or are professed atheists. Um, I do have a friend, however, a neuroscience friend, who has just received a grant to try to understand better the brain during experiences of prayer. And I will definitely propose this idea as a study to him um, because it's something I think about in my, my personal life, one of the ways that I try to cultivate patience in my spiritual life when I am, for example, in a period of desolation is by keeping in mind how my brain might be in a different state due to whatever sleep deprivation. And this might be constraining some of the ways that I'm able to, on the level of my affect, uh, experience the presence of God. So thank you for that really wonderful suggestion. And I will be sure to pass it along to researchers who could carry it out. There we go. That that was a a bigger and better answer than I was expecting. (laughs) My own privately commissioned piece of research. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks, Valtteri. We have another caller on the line. Radio Mirror, hello. Hi, it's Charles here. Oh, hello, Charles. I'm walking the dog, so you can hear hear the thunder in the background as well. (laughs) I I was actually just interested in the experiments, what what were carried out in terms of for example, in, in prayer mm. um, and the various parts of the uh, the brain lighting up. Mm-hmm. Were these MRIs, were the PET scans, um, and obviously they wouldn't have been done in a they would have been done in a controlled environment as mm-hmm. opposed to 
a church or something. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes. So that's another, another limitation. So to answer your question, most of the studies have used fMRI, some of them, which is, um, for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, functional magnetic resonance imaging shows you how blood and oxygen is being used in your brain. It's a proxy for understanding what regions are being activated. Some of them have used EEG, which looks at electrical activity, and some of them have used PET, uh, positon emission tomography. But um, exactly as you pointed out, nearly all of these studies uh, have not been done in naturalistic settings. They've been done in an fMRI scanner, which for those of you who haven't been in one, is very noisy. Um, yes. Which, yeah, as someone who gets distracted during prayer quite readily, <laughs> I think <laughs> I have I have tried to pray in an, in an MRI scanner actually, and I've found it not as hard as I thought, but certainly different from the experience of praying in a church, let alone in the present, you know, in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. So, definitely another another way to enrich um, the neuroscientific study of prayer is to bring these instruments into environments where Christian prayer and worship is unfolding. And uh, yeah, one of my dreams for some time in my career would be to study people uh, at mass and to try to understand what's happening in their nervous system throughout the liturgy, uh, which, yeah, has has definitely not been done yet, but I think would provide a very fascinating window into this um, most important of of acts of mysteries. Yeah, I suppose you could you could have a screen in the MRI and then put the mass and get the person to Mm, give them a live stream. Yeah, that's right. That's, yeah. that's, that's one way. And I, I think, what about artificial? In, I mean, you know, we look at the development of our children, and um, uh, you know, the 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 fact in the in, in the Western world is that often mothers will have to go back to work very soon. So, um, it, is artificial intelligence could that help at all in terms of 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 improving children and their development? So uh, artificial intelligence ca- can help, I think, in, uh, in helping us understand uh, how to best educate children. Um, it can be used in medical diagnostics. It can be used in uh, sort of uh, policy applications, trying to identify which children we want to help. Um, I don't think that we're going to get anytime soon artificial intelligence in the sense of robots that will take the place of human caregivers. Um, but the development of technology could prove me wrong and put us in a sort of dystopian uh, environment in that regard. I think that, yeah, better ways to use technology are to change the work environment in a way that gives parents the resources to be at home with their children as much as they as they would like to and would need to be. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely something to be celebrated when it can be used in a good way. I agree. I, I was being naughty there. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'd better carry on walking questions. the dog. Thank <laughs> you, Charles. We appreciate it. Okay. That's wonderful. Uh, that's about all we have time for, which makes me incredibly sad because it's <laughs> been too. really fun. It's been fun. And Thank you. I haven't got to half the questions that I had written down here, but um, I'm going to put you on the spot, Milburn, ask if, um, well, after telling us where we can find more stuff from you because you have podcasts and things like that. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Um, so let's go into that and then I'll put you on the spot. Okay. <laughs> you can find me at the Pilgrim Soul Podcast, pilgrimsoulpodcast.com. We have a contact form there. It's a podcast I host with a dear friend of mine and my sister about the experience of faith in the world of today. Um, so if you'd like to continue the conversation, you're welcome to write to me or to listen to 
other episodes, I've got a couple that touch on themes of neuroscience if you're if you're interested in that. So that's where you can find me. Wonderful. And then would you end with a prayer for us, please? I would love to. I would love to. Um, perhaps we can end with the memorare, um, thinking particularly about the places in our world, in our lives, in our homes that are troubled by conflict and war and division, trusting in the loving mercy of God, which entered the world through Mary and her intercession, that she's constantly interceding for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.